0: at orderct.com slash Easter 24.
1: You're listening to the And Campaign's Church Politics Podcast where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square.
0: This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Spread
1: the, spread the word tell the world yeah. you no good and camp you're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with justin Gibney, that's me and the Wendy cindy city representative the baddest brother above the mason dixon line the right reverend christopher butler chris how is the campaign
0: trail my brother uh it is going quite well uh very exciting and Getting uh, good traction. So it's going well. Right on. So you getting out there in
1: the streets, man. You having some good conversation with the uh, constituents and, and all that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are more people who think along the lines that we uh, that we talk about here a lot than than a lot of folks uh, understand. And so uh, that's that's the most exciting thing is to be able to uh, to raise kind of a new way of looking at these issues, uh, especially in this state.
1: That's awesome, man. I know we've been getting I've been getting a lot of feedback just with people excited to even see a candidate like yourself, brother. So uh keep on keeping on, brother. But as usual, man, we're not going to do too much of uh, the pleasantries. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. So, you know what it is. Uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. So let's get started. Let's get into it, man. Um The Derek Chauvin trial consumed much of the country's attention for the past few weeks. And for understandable reasons, Um, many were afraid that the American criminal justice system would fail us yet again. We were afraid that we'd be told that our eyes were lying to us and again be forced to grieve a system that not only doesn't prevent these very preventable killings, but also fails to properly adjudicate these tragedies and serve justice. And I think those are two very important things to understand how they're connected, but also how they're separated. There's 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 the killing, which was preventable and an injustice. And then there's the second part, which is the adjudi- adjudication of that. Right. And, and how these things come together. We'll talk about that a little later. But I'll be honest with you, Chris. I didn't watch much, much of the trial, Um and that wasn't because I'm, I was uninterested in the outcome. I was very interested in the outcome. But I noticed a few things that were very unsettling about the discourse surrounding the trial. And the first thing I noticed was that. Well, let me just say this. I, I was really disgusted by how a lot of cable news outlets treated the trial as if it were another show to be exploited for our entertainment. And for their ratings, uh, it seems like every point and counterpoint was sensationalized. Every objection and motion was dramatized, and they treated every break like an intermission to some theatrical play. Uh, really, just trying to ensure that we didn't go anywhere so we wouldn't miss the next act. Um, the other thing I noticed, Chris, is that you know it just seemed like every commentary was. Created to fit a certain narrative. Right. So we weren't just getting what was happening in the trial. We're getting all this other stuff and they're trying to make sure that we're all tuned in. And I just didn't think the coverage did the country or the families involved any justice. Again, in my opinion, it seemed like they were exploiting a very serious and sad situation. Uh, and and I, I just didn't appreciate it. So I didn't tune in a whole bunch, although I, you know, I kind of kept tabs on uh, social media. Now, to be clear, uh, I believe that Officer Chauvin deserved to be tried and punished from what we saw in the video and other facts that were gathered and presented during the trial. Um, this uh, apparently wasn't his first time. Now, there was there was also some stuff that wasn't actually admissible in trial. But we find out that this actually wasn't the first time that he had put his knee into someone's body for an extended amount of time. This may have been a practice for him. Um, And I would just say that his actions clearly didn't fit the alleged crime committed by George Floyd and showed a gross lack of care for uh, Floyd's body and for his life. Um, And consequently, an image bearer lost his life and children lost a father. Uh, We cannot continue to live within a system that allows that to happen and thankfully, The jury seemed to come to an impartial verdict. That said, one of the questions I had to ask myself, Chris, was. How much joy can or should we derive. From a verdict. Yes, there can and probably should be a sense of relief that the system served its purpose. I'm not at all mad at those who found solace in that part of the outcome. But how far. Should that go for Christians? A verdict, in essence, is at best a confirmation that something really bad actually happened and usually that someone will be punished for it. Is there something we should celebrate in that? The trial understandably became a symbol of the entire American criminal justice system and the entire history of the interactions between white police officers and black people. That's just kind of what it became. It began to represent something it could never fully settle, in my opinion, Chris. You almost got the feeling that people expected it to restore them in a way that just wasn't possible. Some of us expected the trial to give us a sense of closure. But once the verdict was read, we immediately found out, that it didn't suffice, that it couldn't carry the weight of our needs and expectations. Floyd was still dead and the system was still fractured. Some found joy in seeing Chauvin's response to the verdict. And what I realized as I saw the commentary flowing down my uh, Twitter uh, feed was that there's a thin line between wanting to see the law work And wanting to see the villain suffer. Here's the tension. As Christians, we should be glad when justice prevails in one way or another. But at the same time, we can't rejoice when our enemy falls. In Christianity, the motive always matters. I guess if I was to sum this up, Chris. I would say that true restoration and healing won't come from a verdict by itself. And many times we won't get closure after tragedy. But thankfully, there is. Forgiveness. And this is a theme that New York Times writer Elizabeth Brunig hit on in her latest um, article that was entitled Chauvin was convicted. Something still something is still very wrong. In this article, which I think was very well written, she says, uh, while something meaningful had occurred with the Chauvin verdict, it was still incomplete and will eventually have to move on to avoid seeking revenge. That's a, a paraphrase of kind of her initial point. She then goes on to ask this question. What can be done about all the suffering? She answers her own question by saying. In one sense, the answer is nothing. Pain lasts. Grief lasts. Anger lasts. The life you had before loss is never returned to you. There's a hole in the world, one of the many regrettable results of our human tendency to hurt one another. She goes goes on to talk about forgiveness. She says that forgiveness doesn't feel particularly triumphant. It's a gift. No one wants to be in the position to give. It releases a wrongdoer from moral debt. I like that term. Moral debt for their own good, for their own good and the common good, not for the sake of the wrong. Then then she she ends it. and I'm going to pass it to you, uh, Chris. She ends this by saying, I want to live in a world where it is a where it is possible to forgive and be forgiven. In fact, I think it's necessary. And I think it emerges not from a place of moral victory, but from the realization of human brokenness, the recognition of things lost that can't be regained, and the emptiness that holds their place. It's from these gaps that beautiful things sometimes grow. What was your take just on the trial, and and I guess more so on the article?
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll spend more time talking about the article. I certainly. I uh, agree with you uh, and Justin like you I did not uh partake in a lot of the um the coverage of of the trial for for many of the same reasons I mean I think across the board I've been trying to uh, since I even discovered it you know practice uh that kind of uh, healthy media hygiene and uh and even just some self-care and soul care in terms of consuming uh that kind of thing for those of us, any of us who, who have ever had to be around uh, real criminal trial and closer to it with people who are going through that, um, you know, being prosecuted or the families of folks who uh, have have been victims, uh, that kind of entertainment ethic that we see throughout our politics and our civics, uh, I think is something that that's breaking and harming our discourse uh, in big ways. So I, I, I didn't uh, jump into that, uh, but I really did uh, appreciate uh, that article that was written because I I do think that it provides a great perspective, just in terms of how we deal with this, and I think it's particularly uh, germane for Christians because we have uh, have already confessed to believe this holy scripture. Uh, and so it's particularly germane for us. I think it can can speak out in, into the culture. Um, you know, we talk a lot at the end campaign about the great requirement. And I think it's very, uh, instructive in Micah 6-8 for this moment because that, that great requirement. We know God says he's shown you what is required. First is to do justice, right? And so we can never shrink back from that mandate to act as justly as we can, uh, both as individuals uh, and in our institutions. Um, But the, uh, the prophet Micah goes on directly after that to say, you know, we want to do justice, but love mercy and walk humbly before our God right and this idea that we're called to do justice uh, but then love mercy and walk humbly uh, i think is very instructive because while we want to do justice and we want our systems and we want our relationships to be as just as possible we want to uh, as you said Justin rightly adjudicate uh, these types of uh, injustices and tragedies when they happen we cannot fall in love with the adjudication of tragedy. We cannot fall in love with the simple doing of justice. We should be searching for opportunities for mercy because that is where uh, healing, and I love the word that you use, restoration, uh, is going to take place. Uh, And then we have to walk humbly, which I think uh, in this case is really, uh, and I think it's something that you alluded to, we have to acknowledge that there really is a limit to our human capacity to do justice. Right now, uh, we know as believers that uh, that there will be uh, a day when the one who is perfect in justice will rightly and perfectly adjudicate all of the matters of all of time. Uh, but for us in, in our human uh, society and in our human condition, there is a limit to our ability even to rightly adjudicate this. And so lest we be caught in this perpetual uh, cycle of, of hate and violence and brokenness uh, better. We look for opportunities for mercy, uh, look for opportunities for restoration, uh, for love, for moving forward. Uh, yes. Without ever shrinking back from that mandate to do justice, right? Like we can never, uh, you know, not do that. So it, it is good and right when injustice happens and when a crime is committed for the perpetrator of that crime to be uh, convicted in courts of law uh, and duly punished. Um, but at the same time, we're not going to heal our society uh, by throwing, uh, you know, violators in jail. We're going to heal our society by doing a much uh, deeper work uh, in our own hearts and in our communities. It's good. I mean,
1: Chauvin was held accountable. Um, But again, what do we draw from that? I hope we recognize that he has a family and that even on his side of the equation, there are some people who were hurt who were innocent. Right. Uh, That, you know, him going to jail for however long he ends up going to jail is going to hurt some people. That, again, doesn't take away from the fact that he needs to be held accountable. But it should add to the conversation of how should we feel about that? Uh, do we just see the punishment and do we derive some kind of, uh, again, joy from that punishment? Or are we praying for his redemption? Because surely as Christians, we don't believe he's irredeemable. And we should be hoping that he's redeemed, be hoping that, you know, uh, uh, God willing, that when he walks out of that jail, that he's a different person. And that maybe he can be spreading the gospel in a whole different perspective that could help cops. Uh, police officers that are in similar situations. That's really what we should be uh, working towards. And I, and I think just the, the the way people were pointing out you know, uh, his suffering and what he's about to go through, I just don't think, I think you can care about justice and not take it there. I think you can care about justice and also say, you know what, when he is sentenced, I hope his sentencing is proportional, right? That it's not too much because I feel like that would be some get back. It's really not get back. And, and that's what I like about the Brunick article. You can't, get back what was lost, right? That's a life. You don't get that back. But justice can take care of that second part of the equation where we do make sure that people are held accountable, but that doesn't restore you either. And so the best that we can get at it sometimes is forgiveness and the understanding of what is lost and trying to make things better from there. Uh, If we search for more, uh, I think we are searching in vain. Anything else, Chris, on this one?
0: Yeah, I, I'll just say if you're listening to this and you had an ill thought toward uh, my brother Justin right now, or you're getting ready to tweet him when he talks about people on Chauvin's side, um, people in his family and in his world who were innocent and got hurt by this. Uh, I would just encourage you to like take that thought captive because that is the that's the poison. That is the part that um, that all these folks who are pushing these narratives and want us to stay divided. They want you to, to take that into your soul. And I would just encourage you, don't let that go into your soul. Don't let guilt by association, um, take over so that you can't even think, uh, a positive thought towards somebody who, uh, knows or is related to, uh, Derek Chauvin because of the, the, the actual evil, unjust, terrible thing that he did. Uh, but if if you let that just go to his whole family and community, um that that will poison it, right? That is the nature of tragedy, right? Like a lot of stuff was broken because of a, a, a horrible decision by uh a a an officer of the law. Um but don't don't tweet at Justin because he said there are innocent people in Derek Showwood's family, because there are. Uh, and you've got to allow your heart and your mind to be able to go there uh, if you want to be one of the ones who contributes uh, to our moving forward uh, and 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 healing as a coach.
1: That's right. Don't at me. Uh, no, I I think it's a very good point. I mean, if you had to look in his children's eye or his parents, eye, or his wife's eye or any of those people, I hope as a Christian, you would be able to find some compassion uh, to have for those folks. Because when I say they're innocent, I'm saying they didn't commit that crime. Yet they paid for it in a certain way, too. Uh, we have to have room for that, even if it doesn't fit the narrative. But that's all for this uh, segment. We will be back in a second with even more on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It's Justin Gibney here with Reverend uh, Chris Butler. In other news, uh, Rick Santorum, who you may remember, he is a former senator from Pennsylvania, a former presidential candidate. Uh, Santorum gave us yet another sad example of how American history is often romanticized, uh, fictionalized and maybe just plainly misunderstood by some American leaders and by the church. Now, me and Chris aren't calling for Santorum's cancellation. Let's not, you know, we're not really into that. But I do think that this provides us with a teachable moment, wherein if we can remove our rose-colored glasses and temper our pride disguised as benign patriotism, we might actually learn something of importance. Now, while speaking at the Stand Up for Faith and Freedom conference, Santorum, who is a Christian conservative, said this. Americans birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but candidly, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. Again, this is a former presidential candidate, a former uh, U.S. senator uh, whose understanding of American history is I don't know any way other, other way to put it, is really make-believe. Uh, I'll assume, and it like generally sounds like a, a fairly smart guy, and so I'll try to be charitable and assume that he knows the facts of American history better than he expressed them uh, at that moment. But what worries me even more than that, Chris, is the storyline he seems to earnestly believe, which should be disturbing to all of us. Now, when it comes to American history, Chris, I kind of take a Frederick Douglass point of view of America. Um, Our Constitution, I believe, created the mechanisms to develop a truly free society. We've done some great things and have been extraordinarily innovative at some very crucial moments uh, and and, and made a, a real contribution to the world. Okay, unfortunately, as you and I both know. That's only part of the story. Right. You see, the fiction Santorum described is the origin of Christian nationalism, nationalism. It's a point of view that justifies all America's exploits and disregards and demonizes all other groups that get in the way of this perfect narrative. You see this this kind of narrative narrative pretends that God approved of all the means by which this country was built and that the settlers only brought with them peace and faithful worship. It makes the U.S. the new Israel, giving it international supremacy and absolving it for all the resources, cultures and lives that it took in the process of achieving its prosperity. It's part fake history in part, terrible theology, it forces many to contend that there can't be institutional racism, that there can't be systemic racism, because that would imply that maybe America hasn't always been more moral and virtuous than everyone else. What we see in that speech is God and country made in the imaginative image of those who write the history books. For the record, and I'm hoping y'all know this, but I want to be clear, the Europeans who came over to this country didn't birth a nation from nothing. There was already culture here and they benefited from the numerous Native American inventions and contributions that not only provided sustenance, but allowed the newcomers to make it through the terrain and waterways of this land. American culture has indeed been influenced by Native American art, culture and ideology. In fact, part of our government system of federalism was borrowed from the government of the Iroquoian League. That's a Native American tribe. Ask Benjamin Franklin about it. Santorum's statement reflects a serious flaw, Chris, in Western thought that I think is evident even as far back as the Crusades, Manifest Destiny, and so on. You see, the problem is, Chris, many Western thinkers refuse to believe that any value in civilization could exist outside of Western influence. In other words, they believed it was only through Western thought and culture that human progress could be achieved. And this fiction was dangerous. Because this fiction always tried to commingle God's will with Western self-interest. And it always conflated the desires that they had with God's prescriptions. It rears its ugly head still today in the church, where many majority Christians seem to believe that anything outside of their cultural norms is not biblical. That only true orthodoxy can come from the West. And that others have very little to say or to add to the conversation. I don't know, Chris, I was just uh, disappointed, not surprised, unfortunately, but disappointed with uh, what Santorum had to say. What, what's your take on?
0: It? I mean, I'm extremely disappointed. Um, maybe even a little bit surprised, uh, you know, that it came from uh, from this individual and this uh at this moment and in this time, uh, I would I would think that folks would be uh, growing both in their in their social thought and their uh, sort of theological understanding of these issues. Uh, obviously, the uh, the European settlers, uh, even that word, but the European settlers uh, certainly did not build a society from nothing. There was an entire society uh, happening. When they showed up, and as you pointed out, uh, Justin, there's a lot of uh, Native American culture in American culture, uh, particularly as a guy who comes from Chicago, Illinois, uh, you know, both uh, Native American, I think, Algonquin words, um, you know, Native American influence in our society uh, is significant. Um in addition to that, you know, there was this whole other group of folks here, uh, at the beginning of American society who were neither natives, uh, nor, uh, folks who came in search of, uh, freedom and liberty, but were actually brought here, uh, in chains, uh, as chattel property. So, um, there is a very complex, uh, beginning, uh, to this American story. And the, the, the difficult part is that what we have to do right now is is establish and embrace the fact that the, the, the very complicated uh, origin story does not mean that it is not a great story, right? Like, I, I really believe that it is a great story, um, even with the, the very complicating factors. And, and, and if we look at this from a, a sort of theological uh, point of view, uh, it it, it saddens me that Christians continue to carry this narrative because it really, I, I, I guess I would say, diminishes what we actually teach about the God we serve, right? Like, if we really believe in the power of God to move sovereignly uh, in the affairs of man, uh, then there is no need to uh, vest our founders with this unintelligent and undue amount of sort of uh, moral perfection and, and almost like divine rectitude, uh, because it, if it wasn't their goodness, right, that, uh, that brought the country to the place that it is. We can believe that the good hand of God uh, was on the United States, not because of the goodness of, you know, Europeans who came to the Americas, but because of the sovereign goodness of God who decided in God's own sovereignty uh, to act in certain ways and and maybe even bless this nation uh, in particular ways. And you don't have to give the founders glory uh, in order to establish that. In fact, I think you take away from giving glory where it is due, which is to God. Uh, It's like Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you got it for yourself? Um, and 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 if we can hold those two things together, I think it can help us move forward in terms of thinking about our American story. Um, and, and no place should be more skilled at holding those two things together than the church, right? Like we... Understand at a fundamental level that we serve a God who does good toward us, not because of our goodness, but in spite of our brokenness. Um, And that's really the story, I think, of the United States. And so there's no need uh, to come with these, you know, uh, these narratives of how great uh, and, and amazing our founders were. Yeah, it's prideful. I mean, if we really
1: if we really believe the things that we read in the Bible about human nature. About, you know, human history. We can't faithfully hold on to these false narratives that that paint us as, you know, uh, you know, just these these great people who had this history with no flaws in it. There were plenty of flaws. And I think we have to realize how much uh, you have to do to just maintain this flawless narrative where, you know, Folks came over here innocently and and just did the best they could. And, and that's that's where the story ends. And nobody else, because he, he also says something like, unlike anybody else, we haven't changed. We haven't evolved, which I don't even know if that's a good thing. But he said something about unlike all these other countries, we haven't changed our our, our principles and all this other stuff, uh, which I hope we have or there may not be in, in any progress. But let me ask you this, Chris, because you you talked about being able to again, we talk so much about tensions because life for the Christian in many ways, as about attention, the tension of saying no. We can say that there are certain things that we do are that are exceptional, and we can say there are some exceptional transgressions. But let me ask you this: Can we say that America is the new Israel?
0: No. No, you cannot.
1: It's not. It's not the. Theoli- You're telling me that's not theologically sound. You're going on record.
0: I am going on record that that's ridiculous.
1: Got you. I I, I would have to agree. Uh, and I just hope folks under I hope folks see why we why we can't do that. Uh, and it doesn't mean there's so much pride that goes into this conversation. And I've talked about it uh, on this podcast before. I've been in a room within the last year where when people simply gave historical facts, not in a, a finger pointing way, just gave the historical facts about slavery, Jim Crow. and all this other thing, I've seen majority Christians get upset, like angry. And the only thing that I can see from that is that's pride, man. Yeah. That's pride not allowing you to deal with reality. The reality is this country has a checkered past. It doesn't mean that it's all bad. It doesn't mean that it's so much below everybody else. But this supremacy that we have towards other folks is just not justifiable. And, you know, these are kind of old old wives tales. I think a lot of cultures have old wives tales that they put out there. But when you're in a position of leadership, you can't just go along with those, you know, with those old wives tales because they have consequences. They impact our ability to make progress on racial justice. When people don't want to admit where we are or that we've ever had problems, that really has real consequences. Uh, And so it's not just that we're upset with him for sitting at the dinner table and telling a couple old wives tales that make, uh, you know, the the family kind of legacy look better. We're talking about a country that has some real serious issues to deal with. And we can't get at those issues unless there's a more of an admission about where we we've been and about where we still are, that has to happen. I'll let you uh, close this out, Fred.
0: Yeah, I, I would just say the other danger and the other negative impact is that this is actually, uh, it, it stands in the way of the gospel, right? Because mm. it, it, it furthers this narrative that the hand of God was somehow at work because of the goodness of these men who came to, the, to these uh, shores. Instead of saying, that the hand of God was at work because of the goodness of God, right? Like we we teach this idea in our theology of unmerited favor, uh, but then when we go back and and try to paint a picture of these exceptional human beings who were morally and intellectually um, and you know uh, exceptional in all these different ways, uh, and and it just messes it up, and it and it 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 takes away from the gospel. Uh, it 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 kills, you know, what we're trying to do in terms of of telling the real gospel story of unmerited uh, favor. And again, to talk about unmerited favor does not diminish uh, the good that was in the founders, that was in the uh, the 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 process of founding this nation. Uh, It was not perfect. It was it was extremely imperfect. But, yeah, there were really bright Hard working, you know, I'm sure those things stand, but you make it implausible, uh, when you try to make it like it was perfect. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 so it detracts from our history, but it also detracts if you're a believer who's out there trying to bring the gospel to folks. Uh, if you're also bringing this kind of, uh, poorly historically rooted nationalism, uh, that, Activity is standing in the way of your efforts toward pointing people toward a God of mercy and love who uh, reaches toward mankind with His love, uh, even when that humanity is broken and sinful and not doing all the right things. Uh, so, I would exhort you as a uh, if if you are a proponent of of justice um, in the culture, don't go with this stuff. And if you are a proponent of the gospel uh, in this world, don't go with this stuff because this this line of reasoning stands in the way of all of it. It is a credibility problem
1: and it's a public witness problem. If you're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't want anything like this standing in the way and obstructing others from uh, getting the point. Thank you for that, Chris. Uh, We're going to take one more break and then we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. We're back on the Church Politics Podcast, and I want to talk a little bit about a story about cotton from cotton to Congress. Uh, Democratic Representative Karen Bass uh, came to the defense of Senator Tim Scott, calling him an honorable man after uh, The Washington Post criticized his Cotton to Congress, from Cotton to Congress story that he often gives uh, as a stump speech. Uh, Scott is the U.S. senator from South Carolina, and he often tells the story about how his grandfather had to drop out of elementary school to pick cotton, And never learned to read or write. Uh, That is used to highlight the fact that he is now a senator uh, for that state. Now there have, you know, apparently um, there was a story that was done, and Wapo, based on uh, U.S. Census data and property record um, property records, they found that this origin story was missing some nuance. Apparently, there was some inconsistencies in his grandfather's stated age. Sometimes he says that it was third grade, sometimes it's first grade, sometimes it's uh, fourth grade. Um, And Scott failed to mention that his grandfather went to work on a farm that was actually owned by his great-grandfather. Okay. So that's uh, what the article was about. And a lot of folks have been going back and forth. You have a lot of Republicans uh, standing up and and kind of pushing back against this. You have, again, Representative Karen Bass, who is a Black woman, Uh, standing up for somebody in another party who is uh, Tim Scott to say, hey, uh, he is an honorable person. Let's not let this get in the way of the work that he has done. So this is an interesting conversation uh, for me. Uh, The first thing I'll say is that if those are indeed the facts, then it's fair to reveal those facts. Right. No no group, black, black or otherwise, is excused from facing any facts. And I don't think anybody is suggesting that that's the case. But I also say this, Chris. So we have the facts. I think folks need to know the facts. We know sometimes this happens in stump speeches, probably more than it should. Folks, uh, uh, you know, add to the story a little bit or change the story. We've heard similar things happening even to the president. Right. The president has, has had some stump speeches and some narratives that we found out weren't so true. Doesn't mean that they shouldn't be pointed out. Doesn't mean that it's uh, right. But it often happens. The thing I can't help but wonder about is what. The Washington Post was trying to apply, imply, if anything, right? Are they implying that Scott's achievement of becoming a Black U.S. senator is any less impressive? Are they apply, implying that it's any less important? Um, are they implying that things weren't so bad for Black people in South Carolina during uh, that time? And the reason that I asked this, Chris, and maybe you, know, you let me know if it's fair or unfair, but the reason that I ask this is that it's not lost on me that some progressives and progressive institutions in the media tend to go really hard on black conservatives. Um, I found even in, in my you know, in my life, you know, I'm, I'm progressive on some things, conservative on others. But I found that many progressives, white progressives especially, have a hard time fathoming why a black person would take any politically or culturally conservative position and they can become very condescending when they address it. Um, I personally, as you as you know, think there's very good reasons for black people not to be progressive on every single issue, whether it be cultural or political. Um, and I've also seen folks that get in the habit or, or have have tried to tell black people that they weren't black or black conservatives, that they weren't black enough. Um, and I really take exception to that. So I'm not exactly sure that's what happening here. It, it could be possibly implied. Facts are cool. But what's the implication? Because rarely do you do, uh, you know, a, a story just just to give give the facts, especially when there's a, some narrative within that story. Uh, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on this uh, on this subject, Chris.
0: Yeah, I mean, I am uh, I, I, I think I'm with you on the uh, idea of, you know, if the facts are there, uh, you know, sure, it's okay to uh, uncover those facts. I think I am a little bit more, I understand why this story exists um, presently. Uh, There is, you know, a difference, I think, in terms of like giving a detailed account of that kind of family history uh, and telling somebody's family story. Uh, Those of us who, you know, and I think this is mostly everybody, when you tell stories, especially when you're telling a family story, uh, you're not, you know, giving an account of your search of the uh, the census records. And and the article even uh, admits as much uh, that while there is uh, nuance uh, omitted from the story, I don't know if it raises to the level of less right in. Uh, In the paper about it, Uh, and and because I have serious questions about why the thing exists, um, it takes my mind directly, you know, to the fact that you have uh, a person here uh, who is probably a legitimate uh, contender for the Republican nomination uh, for the presidency uh, in 2024 may want to seek that nomination and a. A, a, a progressive uh, paper wanting to stand in the way of that because of uh, because of this this person's conservative views, and when you add to the fact that this conservative person is an African American man, boy, that should confound your sort of. Uh, Progressive mind around this. this is why I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad to see Congresswoman Bass kind of step up and, uh, and say like, Hey, here's an honorable guy, uh, is telling a story. I wouldn't care if, if he worked on his, on his father's farm or not. Uh, you're talking about an African American, uh, family, uh, who went from farming. Uh, to be in the United States Senate. And you can see that this is an incredible, incredible achievement. Uh, if you just look and see how many African Americans are in the Senate today, how many African Americans have ever been in the Senate? Um, and here's an individual who really did, uh, uh, come up and, and, and come through, uh, these, you know, this American story that we just got through talking about, uh, and is in the United States Senate. Um, that's an incredible story. Uh, and so to write in the newspaper to try to diminish that story and try to make it seem less incredible uh, seems to me unnecessary. And. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit um, I think for me, it's a little bit upsetting uh, because you're trying to stand in the way of uh, of a black man uh, going uh, ascending to the presidency. Because you disagree, uh, you know, with his politics. And so you go at this narrative uh, of of the story of his, you know, a legitimate black experience in the United States. Um, So it's it's uh, it's not something that I enjoyed uh, seeing. And I'm still I don't understand why it was written. I don't understand why it was printed. Yeah, I
1: mean facts matter. Um, So I can't be mad at the facts. But as we said, again, motives matter. Uh, And in our political system, rarely does something like this happen without motives. Uh, And if the motive was to cut him down to size or make his story seem less compelling, number one, I think it failed. I I don't think anybody's going to look at somebody coming up through South Carolina and becoming a U.S. senator in the way that Tim Scott did and take that art, you know, and that article is really going to take anything away from that. So if that was the point, I think it was somewhat petty. I think it was a, a failure. Um, and and there's there's a chance that that could be the case. Again, you know, to say, oh, yeah, his grandfather was picking cotton. He probably didn't learn how to read or write, uh, but it was on his father's farm. That's, you know, that's something to point out. But to your point, why? I mean, it, you know, it, it, it is some nuance that I guess could have been asked, but in in stories like that, we, we understand that that happens. And I just don't think it cuts at his credibility significantly enough to put it in a story like that. So if that was the point, uh, they probably could have used their time more wisely. But I, but I do want to point out, we don't want to run from facts. Right. We don't want to say, uh, let's just keep the narrative and never put the facts out there or, or nobody deserves to know the true facts. We can put those out there. Uh, we can look through the records. We can, you can we can check through the census. Uh but at the end of the day, what were the motives and um you know what point of view did this come from uh again, I do not like how some progressives come at black conservatives i I disagree with uh, many of my black conservatives friends on a lot of different things doesn't mean they're any less black doesn't mean that they're uh it's 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 any more okay for folks to come at them and disrespect them in that way and if I did know better, I would say this feel you know this feels like uh it could be part of that whole kind of condescending nature of those conversations.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, let's, I would just say, let's see that kind of uh, journalistic veracity applied uh, evenly uh, across the board to all candidates uh, who are telling family stories, especially uh, as we see, um, you know, this happen in a lot of campaigns and in a lot of ways, even on, on, on the left. So you know, if, if you if you're gonna have a new uh page in your newspaper where we just come at people's uh you know family narratives, knock yourself out. But this this one off is a little strange to me.
1: Yeah, it is it is a little it's it's dubious to say the least. Well, Chris, man, another good episode. Appreciate you, man. I hope y'all out there learn something from this. Again, please support us. You can go to the to ancampaign.org and support the organization, or you can go to uh, uh, the church, poli- You can uh, support us in our Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com slash churchpolitics. Um, we just thank you all for being involved, man, and, and, and supporting what we're trying to do. Uh, we're just getting started. So as always, Ann Camp, uh, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and camp. Until next time, we'll holler you. Kingdom, kingdom.
0: Oh, Lord. I say kingdom. Kingdom.